So, <laughs> but but I, also, I also know that as, as a dad, what you're saying, being, making sure that you're always available for those questions. You're the safe place to go and ask the questions. That's, that's really key. Mr. Evans, in your first talk, you mentioned a split mentality or a bifurcation of our worldview. Can you explain again more what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think it's about the, the, the dualism, and, and this is where we go to Schaefer and, and Piercy um, explicates this, but I think this idea that we, we view rationality, science, facts as a certain story, and we view religion and opinion as a different story. And so and we, don't want to, we don't want to transgress those. I use the idea of the politician who, uh, who says, yes, I'm a Catholic, or yes, I'm a Christian, but it doesn't have any bearing on how I manage you know, my, my politics. And so I think in, in terms of uh, developing worldview, we need to teach our kids that all of life is God's. You know, the Kuyperian view of um, understanding that, that, that God is sovereign over all, he rules over all, everything can point back to the scriptures, there's really nothing that happens um, or, or that you can't have scripture filter through um, that, that idea of truth. Is that, connected, is that connected at all to, either you can speak to this, to, to what is often being taught as the two kingdom mentality? Just like, uh, is that connected to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm troubled by the two kingdoms theology. I mean, I, I think I understand it on a practical level. When you get into pragmatics, I read a book on two kingdoms, and I agreed with a lot of what he was saying in terms of, yes, you know, um, there's heaven, there's earth. Um, we get that. This world is not our home. You know, we, we, we get those kinds of things. Um, but two kingdoms takes it to the next level and says, what we're really concerned about is the gospel. What we're really concerned, that's true. We're really concerned about church, Sabbath worship. That's true. That's good. Um, but then when it comes to, and, and this author used politics and education and vocation as areas where, you know, what you do isn't as relevant. It's not as important. And so I think there is sort of a dualism that creeps into two kingdoms theology there that, that I'm troubled by. Well then, Dr. Merkel, to you. Um, seek the peace of the city. Aren't we now also waiting for the Messiah's second coming? And couldn't there be times or seasons where we should see that uh, this is a command for our time to seek, seek the peace of the city? Along with that, another question. Uh, oh, I had the wrong one here. Um, if I had it. The question was, aren't we actually um, in the last times anyway? Okay, so the, for, the first, for the first part, um, I did try to make sure I put in a little bit of a qualification in that to say, I do believe that you could make wise application of that passage now. So if the big picture principle is um, there are moments where you need, you need to just try to bless the situation that's around you and, and understand realistically what you can and what you can't accomplish. Um, I think that makes perfect sense and there are times when you ought to employ that. What I was objecting to was the attempt to say that from a macro level, we are currently at a time where we're essentially in an equivalent to the Babylonian captivity. And I, I, I do not believe that is an accurate unpacking of what scripture says where we are now. And that second question connects with that really well. Um, 
are we currently in the end times? I don't believe so, and that's and I I mentioned um, I mentioned this in that talk. I mentioned coming from a post millennial perspective, which I probably should unpack a little bit more. But it, I my conviction would be that Christ, when he ascended um, uh, from from being with the uh, disciples, and he ascended to heaven, he ascended to sit down at the right hand of the Father and establish his reign over all of the earth. And that that reign is, um, appears in the preaching of the gospel, which is a slow and steady advance. I think that, um, I think that we have misread scripture when we believe that we're always um, in this moment where the end is just about to come. And I think that that is something that, I mean, I grew up in, again in the 80s with the rapture fever always being um, something that was just about to happen. And um, one of the problems that happens with that is it, it makes us, um, I think, slack in actually building what we should be building. And I think that it's um, a mistaken way of, of fleshing out scripture. But I think if you want to know more about that, if you read up on post-millennialism, you get that explained. Isn't the rapture fever actually, that, isn't that happening right now? Everybody's going to Idaho? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, it, it is a little bit crazy right now, but... <laughs> um, uh, also to both of you, this is, uh, I can tell that a child wrote this. Um, why do I have to learn Latin? <laughs> Quid? <laughs> what? <laughs> so, okay, I, I would argue... Um, First of all, um, Latin is there's uh, there's nothing special about Latin um, uh, in in one sense. I think in general, I think that it's really good for you to discipline yourself with languages. Um, I think that to be a faithful Christian means to be a person of the word and to understand how words work and to learn to be careful with words. And once you say that, then you look. Then I think disciplining yourself and going from English to other languages really really helpful. And Latin is a really great language to do that in, and, and I would take a long time to unpack it all, but the, the, um, the specifics of Latin grammar, the way it's so highly specific about identifying all the different things that are happening in language, make it a really useful way for learning language in general. Second, um, as Christians, we should know that we have a glorious um, tradition, and I think this is something that um, Protestants are not good at, where we tend to think that our Christianity goes as far back as maybe um, the Billy Graham movement um, in the, you know, 50s or 60s, and 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 that's kind of as far back as we can go. Um, my wife was just pointing out um, some friends visiting, I think it was John MacArthur's church, and and seeing you know huge. John MacArthur quotes in stone all over the church building and people being thrown by like, why, you know, it's just kind of weird a little bit having the pastor's um, words in the stone. But it, I was saying like, I think for a lot of us, we don't realize that we have anybody going back further than John MacArthur. And we actually have this glorious tradition um, that we come from. And what happens is I think good Protestants will um, encounter a Roman Catholic and they'll unpack for them this glorious tradition that they come from and they get so uh, blown away by, um, by the, the sort of riches of this tradition and then they start to feel really empty as a Protestant and then you have a lot of Protestants converting to Catholicism because they don't realize the roots and the heritage that they have. 
And I think that's one of the really cool things that Latin unlocks. When you start to un know, when you start to know Latin, you start to see the Christian tradition that is in that language, and you start to realize we come from somewhere, and we have a very noble tradition that we come from. And so there's, that's another reason why I think it's worth um, prioritizing learning Latin. But having said those two things, it's, it's convenient because it helps you to learn what, how language works. And then it's good because it helps open up to us our own uh, Protestant tradition. Having said those two things, no, there's nothing special about Latin. I think that you could learn French. I think you could learn a whole host of languages and get many great blessings. But I think there's something particular um, which is why the classical Christian tradition has kind of prioritized Latin as that language. Yeah, no, that's good. I would add that, you know, the, the connection to English, of course, and, and very few people who study Latin are actually going to read Caesar. I don't think that's the point. A lot of um, classicists will say, well, that is the point. You've got to learn to read the original, you know, the language, the original authors. Um, but there are very pr pragmatic reasons for Latin as well that we sometimes will talk about at our school. But the you know, bottom line is, um, if your parents want you to learn Latin, then follow your parents' lead and learn Latin. You know, so that's where it comes from. And I, one of the things I've noticed is that for my kids, and we've got classical Christian graduates in the room here, it, it, Latin's one of those things that may be tough as you're going through it, and you may ask why this seems like a waste of time, but most people you advance at five years or 10 years, most people can look back and say, wow, I was thankful I learned Latin. I see the value of Latin. Sometimes that happens years later. I think, I think that part is actually really profound. I think that students of the language, long after they've forgotten their Latin, they've been changed um, and they think far more precisely and they know how to actually speak and write um, in ways that they don't know why, but and they don't realize, but it's the Latin that did it to them. So, like the thing that I'll always do with, um, like if I have a crowd like this, I'll just say, um, uh, okay, if I say, what's the difference between saying he ran versus he was running? He ran versus he was running, and um, all the people from my age sit there going, it's the same. <laughs> um, but then every, all, every kid who has had Latin right off knows oh, it's the difference between completed action in the past or continuous action in the past. And they know that because they learned that distinction when they were, base, they were going through the difference between the perfect and the imperfect Latin verb. And so they've learned how to make these kinds of distinctions in language. Uh, if I say, when do you say who versus whom, um, the kids who have spent the time in the language it actually is pretty obvious and pretty quick. But if you haven't spent the time in the language, it, it just sounds arbitrary. Like, why are you fussy about... Wh whom's to say? Yeah, <laughs> whom's to say? <laughs> yeah. But what happens is you, you start to think in far more precise ways, and I think that that has a real impact down the road. So um, I'm working on... Uh, I have a, uh, an eternal home remodel, and I remember... <laughs> When I first started with sheetrocking, um, and I would use the tape measure, then I didn't bother with anything, like, after the quarter inch, I felt like it's all the same, you know? <laughs> and then you would look at the wall after you're done, and you're like, actually, I guess it matters. <laughs> and starting to use those really little bits, the little 16th inch marks, kind of makes a big difference in the quality of the product. And I think that when you, um, when you do not have that kind of education in the language, 
you're, you're tending to look around saying quarter inch is fine. But once you've had that education, you start to see the distinction between what you said there was kind of close, but actually not quite it. And you start to get far more precise in your language that has a huge impact down the road in your ability to be a communicator and a persuader. You may have a, a new HGTV show on your hands there, The Eternal <laughs> Home Remodel. People it, might it, tune into that. There, there are many seasons to this one. <laughs> the, the kitchen alone is like four seasons. <laughs> oh, good. Um, Mr. Evans, what ages did you start and what ages did you stop spanking your kids? And why? Yeah, I mean, I like what Doug says in his book, and it makes total sense. We forget this, but, you know, little, little kids know that whining gets attention, right? And so the fact that I think you start when, when, when kids understand um, that whining garners attention and a spanking can garner attention. So I would start, I think we started very, very young with our kids. Um, I want to be careful about that, but I think you. I think you know when when a when a child knows can can control that, then um, then a spanking can control that. So in terms of stopping, um, probably I don't know ten eleven range was was that for us. I mean I don't remember the exact age, um, and one of our three required a lot more spankings than the other two. And uh, I find that that's true in most families. That um, so, sp I think all of them got spankings, but some two were very limited, and one had probably ninety percent. <laughs> I'd say yeah, pretty much the exact same. I think that um, it started very young. Probably, um, I'm terrible at remembering the specifics. I need my wife here to say when that happened, but I believe it was probably in the one and a half range, somewhere in there. Obviously, you're, you're, um, you have to judge the frame quite a lot, and, um, and we were done in the 10 to 12 range. And I would say, um, first of all, um, of the spankings for each kid, 90% of those spankings were in that first one to two years, and then everything from then on was just very, ran every very rarely you kind of needed something but most of it was early on and the rest of it was tune-up um i you know for us everybody talked about the terrible twos um most of our work was prior to two and two was wonderful like two was just a blast um if you if you do the work early on i think you really experience the blessing of it and definitely our first was 90 percent of the spankings our last like just very few, which is really, really funny. Um, and I would say, I would say that we, um, it took me a while to kind of figure it out. I, I look back early on and I, I have to apologize to my oldest regularly because like, what was I thinking? Um, there were some things I threw down about that were just really stupid. Um, and I, I wish that I could have um, not been so uptight, but at the same time, I'm really grateful for all the time we put into him, and it seemed like our whole world was just swats. Um, but then also, each kid, like our oldest, he was like 
it was always at least 10 SWATs. By the time we get to the youngest, it was like three and we were fine. And maybe that was just me figuring out my um, my bearings or maybe it was the oldest just really needed it. But you, you have to adjust each kid quite a lot. Yeah, and the mechanics, you know, the mechanics of spanking obviously are really important too. You know, never spank in anger and allow for time for restoration and prayer and that saturation love idea that Jim Wilson talks about. So. You know, spanking is, is wonderful, but it, if done wrong, it can be really, really destructive, too. Ben, this might be connected a little bit to your uh, post-mill, your optimism uh, for the church, but you mentioned uh, in your first talk um, the story arc um, of uh, Stonewall, Selma, and the other S. I'm blanking. S Seneca, thank you. <laughs> um, and, and how... Um, Obama was uh, kind of quoting from Martin Luther King um, this this idea um, of we're going in a particular direction. That's their story arc. Mm -hmm. um, what's ours? What is our story arc? Yeah, I think, um, and I think that this is really important because I I do think that the fact that the evangelical church has largely been convinced that basically at any moment we're going to get raptured, the Antichrist wins, whatnot. I think that that has really shaped the the way we have worked, and I think that our um, we have a, a bit of a uh, defeatist and self fulfilling prophecy of how this works out, and I don't think that that's um, what Scripture teaches. I do think that the um, Christ's words in the Great Commission, I think that that's our story arc. It's he says, basically, you go out, you preach the gospel until you have preached it and all the nations are converted, and that's when he returns. And so um, again and again, you see in Scripture Jesus describing that the gospel will work like leaven, working its way out slowly. And we're told in 1 Corinthians that the end comes when basically the world has been converted, and, and that's when Jesus returns. But I think that's, that is the arc. I think that 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 um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2 is, is such a good picture. The stone crushes the statue, and then the stone slowly grows to fill the whole earth. Just push that out for just a second, because um, I've been around for several decades, and as I look at America, that doesn't look like what's going on in America in terms of the story arc. Can you help me with that? Yeah, I would say, first of all, um, we tend to evaluate world history in, in very small little glimpses. I think if you were to step back and look from the time of Christ to now, what has the gospel done? Then all of a sudden you see a very different picture. And, um, and it, is, it is funny how when we see something very locally going really badly, we believe that this is the fulfillment of this um, passage in scripture, could not somebody in China or somebody in Africa have thought a million times over that the same level of catastrophe was happening in their nation, therefore the end must be there. But we really feel like if something is rough in America, then that means um, that God has forsaken us and everything is gone. It, we need to have a much longer um, picture of an understanding of um, God's leaven working its way out. I would also say... Um, the leaven, I have to be really clear, the leaven is the gospel. It's, it's people being converted by the gospel. It's not uh, political rule. It's not a whole host of other things like that. It is the gospel working its way out. But I think if we have a 
big picture, a step back, we can see actually we live at a time where the gospel has made really great progress. And it may be that we might be in a moment where we're experiencing a moment of persecution and a moment of difficulty. But if you think about it, actually it's the moments of persecution and difficulty where the gospel has always just flourished and taken off. It's when, um, it's when the disciples began preaching and then the, the, um, the Jews began to clamp down on the preaching in Jerusalem and actually executing Christians, that that caused the disciples to spread throughout all of Israel and then throughout all of the Roman Empire. And everywhere they went, the gospel spread. You think of um, like one of the most amazing moments is when the Roman Empire was converted to a Christian empire. And that comes on the heels of 200 years of the Roman Empire killing all of the Christian uh, um, evangelists. You have 200 years of, of intense martyrdom and persecution. And when you're at the end of it, Rome is Christian, which is just crazy. And it makes us realize that um, God works in ways that we don't understand. We constantly think that if he's gaining power, it has to look like this. And then it turns out he always comes up with these ways that we don't see it, but he's spreading his influence. Well, the questions here range all kinds of different directions, practical and, uh, and philosophical and theological. So um, here is uh, Mr. Evans again, uh, a practical question from this room, um, physical room out there. Um, why is Martin Luther King Jr. in your Hall of Fame? If you wanted to stick with an anti-slavery majority, why not Wilberforce or anyone else instead of an adulterer? Yeah, that's good. Thought about that. So uh, we do have Wilberforce. He's in the other building. But, you know, uh, David was an adulterer. I was and, not. Yeah. Different, different Dave. <laughs> different Dave. <laughs> So a lot of sins, but not that one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I mean, none of the people we would put on a poster are sinless, um, and and I think, you know, I think we do well in in our modern era to go back to a lot of what King wrote. I mean, if you read things like Letters from a Birmingham Jail, I mean, um, why we can't wait. He he made power. Not only was he a powerful rhetorician, but he he had the courage and an approach that that. Most of us, I know, I couldn't, I couldn't do his his approach to nonviolence, and that was the way to win. And I think it was gospel oriented. So, um, so I think I think King, I think King is, uh, a, you know, a, a broken man, obviously, like all of us. But he was a hero in many ways too. So, uh, central to the civil rights movement. But we love Wilberforce as well. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Dr. Merkel. Is the left's view of children or of kids? that they're ours, and, and the left's view of the future, um, a conscious, are they self-conscious of that? Um, aside from some leaders who might be self-consciously thinking these are our kids, is that the left's general view, that, that these are kids, this is our future? Um, and to what extent, and, and does that matter? Um, yeah, I, I think it's been, so it's difficult for me to figure out like where a lot of times you see all these things happening and you wonder like where is the command room like where where is this all being um, uh, orchestrated from you know like it, is there is there some secret room where everything is being planned and coordinated where they've got the map and the strings and whatnot um, 
I've not been able to figure that out, and I think that if there is, you know, something going on to that extent, it's probably spiritual and not uh, human. Um, so I, I think that there's, um, I don't have someone like, uh, here, here is where I know what their real plans are, and, and, and here's the team that has orchestrated it. But that said, this has been a pretty continual assault for a number of years. I mean, we're decades and decades into it, and it has been a very, I find it really interesting how focused um, the left has been on certain institutions and the fact that they went after schools. Um, if you go into the public school system, just in terms of political ideology, um, I've, I've read all kinds of different statistics on like, you know, Democrat versus Republican or, or, or whatever within the public school uh, faculty administration. But it is really clear that, um, that a very particular political ideology prioritized taking over education. And they prioritized that over a whole host of other industries. They really went after education. And I believe they went after it because they understood the impact of um, uh, of taking that particular sphere. And I think it's really interesting because we tend, when we see somebody making a power play, we tend to think that it's always money that drives it. And I think it's really striking how much of the left has um, thrown itself at non-monetary aims. I mean, uh, being a public school teacher, I'm sure it probably pays better than being a teacher at a classical Christian school. I think it usually does um, because you're su supported by the taxes and whatnot. But still, that's not like a highly lucrative kind of career. And yet they really have prioritized and focused on that as an industry. And I, and I think it's really total the way it's happened. So yeah, I, I think it's a conscious and deliberate effort to take over education and then use that as a way to flip America. And I think that, it, yes, it matters because it clearly has been profoundly effective. Well, and I'll add to that too. I mean, it's been going on for a long time, right? It's not just the last 10, 20 years. Dewey, you know, John Dewey's goals were not at all in line with a classical Christian traditional approach to education. So. Uh, you know, he's the sort of the father of modern education and a radical progressive socialist oriented. So this has been going on for a long time. I mean, the, the quote from Machen is striking too because we're talking 100 years ago mm -hmm. and, uh, and people like him who was, you know, Machen was fairly prophetic, but he saw it early. Okay, here's a, t uh, a, a good challenging um, uh, pastoral question that I'd love either of you to, to jump in and handle. Here's... Uh, here's the question. What would your advice be to a parent with an adult child dating someone of the same gender? Seems most resources are either affirming of this or Christian res resources can lean too, forward, too far towards standing for truth to the point of sacrificing the relationship. So how would you suggest a faithful Christian parent love their child well without compromising truth in this situation? I think there's a few pieces to it. I mean, one of the first ones and the most obvious one would be the last talk I gave. I, gave, I would make sure that you're devoting a significant amount of prayer um, to that. You've got to be praying over that like crazy. Uh, the, the second would be, um, you, I think you need to balance two, two things really carefully. One is, um, uh, I think you need to be clear and not um, 
not allow certain bound. I think you need to set up certain boundaries and you need to be clear about your take on the situation. I wouldn't want to compromise my Christian testimony to that. The, the thing that I think you have to set alongside that is you, you don't compromise your Christian testimony, but a part of, um, a part of what God has commanded you is to be a father or a mother to that child. And the fact that they're in rebellion or in sin doesn't remove the fact that you have an obligation to continue to be a loving uh, father or mother to that child. And I think that you should really work to continue to express that to them. I remember um, when I uh, when I was in college, uh, my parents divorced, and it was a, a result of my dad uh, being in a sinful relationship. And for years, I felt like whenever I needed, whenever I would get a moment with my dad, I felt like I was um, compromised as a Christian if I didn't somehow bring the conversation to confront uh, confront what I saw as the sin in his life. Um, and it was and and it it would every conversation would go in that direction. It was a very frustrating time. And one of the things I realized was that um, he was in sin, and, and it was I was not wrong about that. But what I had forgotten was that I had a command to honor my father, and that I had stopped doing that because of his sin. And so I realized that, that I needed to somehow um, put those two things together, that I actually have to continue to honor him while still being unflinching in my position. And I think that's, that's where I, I honestly, I don't think that you can walk through that with one question in a Q&A time. I would, like, I would really encourage you to be in weekly conversation with your pastor, getting counsel on, okay, specifically now, how does, how does this work this week, or how does that work with this particular situation? Is Tyler here? What's our time? When... Oh, okay, good, okay. Um, Mr. Evans, what is a good age to give your child a cell phone? And why would you give your child a phone? That's the other question. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, for us, we, I think it was uh, probably high school. I think it was ninth grade. And uh, we probably fell into that trap of the third born where the youngest is, you know, sees all the older. So you do things just naturally a little differently. And so it might have been eighth grade for, for him. But my wife's got a better memory. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there's a magical age. Um, I know some parents who still do the flip phone, you know, no internet service, not the smartphone and that kind of a thing all the way through high school. Um, so, I, so I think there's a lot. I don't think there's one right answer to that question. Um, I have talked to a lot of parents who have those the, the tools, a lot of the software tools of, of managing everything and checking the... Um, the accounts, I think there's a lot of wisdom in doing that. We've probably, um, we probably haven't done as good of a job as monitor, of monitoring all that stuff. We have conversations, obviously. But um, so, yeah, I would, in my mind, probably high school. Um, it's, it's hard. It's, it, it would be hard, and it kind of depends. This is one of the advantages, probably more of a homeschooling situation where you can really manage that stuff a lot more tighter in your own family. And once you get in a, um, you know, you play on the volleyball team or the soccer team or you're in a school, there are some very practical uh, reasons, I think, to have 
uh, cell phone and that communication device. So I don't know. That's probably not a great answer, but I would say I would I would try to hold out till till high school. That's our own personal opinion. I think much younger than that, and I think you issue in a lot of problems. I mean there. There are when you do the re you see the research on the dopamine effects and the hits of um, you know different sites and th those kinds of things. Uh, cell phones are highly addictive. It's just the reality. The more you read on that, the more you realize it. You have any thoughts? Yeah, we we were about the same. So high school and it's, it's when your kids are in all the athletic competition, you're trying to track where they all are. I have my favorite app is Life 360, where it's like. It's this app where I can see where all my kids are at all times or and at know where that, their phones are. Yeah, where their phones are. Well, it also has like how fast they were driving and things like that. It's like, um, so some of the, you know, we, we, all of the, um, we've done like Covenant Eyes and things like that on, on phones and also on laptops. One, the, a few things that I find just kind of little rules. Um, at our house, all the kids' bedrooms are upstairs and we've just made the rule that no internet goes upstairs um, so that if they're in their room at night, they're, they're not, um, maybe they're reading their Bible on their phone, but they can't be texting or watching anything. So all interaction with the internet happens down in the family room or around the dining room table where we are. And one rule that I have with the kids is that I pay the cell phone bill. That means that whenever I feel like it, I can look at whatever's on your phone. Um, and I can pick up a phone and look through texts, whatever, and I can give impact or input on how they're behaving. I would restrict what apps they can have and what apps they cannot have on, on their apps or on their phones. And I think that generally has gone, I think, fairly fairly well for us. But I think the big thing is just that you're a part of it, that, it, that it's not like a separate life from you. We had, um, yeah, we, we did the whole permission on apps as well. And the other thing we, that we talked to our kids about is um, no, no contact with members of the opposite sex until a certain age. So I think that was probably what maybe junior, senior in high school, I think. So you, if you're texting people, you're not having text, texting, texting relationships. Just because, you know, if we're not going to allow the dating, that's sort of a way to start up those emotional connections if you, if you start to text uh, or email, whatever it is, uh, members of the opposite sex. Yeah, I, I would just add one thing that we, we talked about. You mentioned this, but to just press that out, that there isn't a private area of your child's life. I mean, obviously, they can use the bathroom and change their clothes, and, but, but conversations that they are having with other people, um, we have a responsibility for as fathers, which means that um, they understand that all of those um, while we're not hovering over them and checking every every text or every message or whatever that they have, we they know that we know um, that we can ask and look into anything that is going on with conversation. And you have to do that in the context of, and I'm doing this not just as your father who's responsible, but as your friend to help you because you're gonna you can find yourself in some gnarly situations, mm -hmm. um, and I can help you. I can help you with that. So we made made that kind of the rule as well. Um, here's an interesting question for you, Dr. Merkel. What are some ways that you delight yourself in the Lord? Well, huh. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that, um, <laughs> barbecue, <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think that, um, it's, it's about having a, a life where your delights 
um, if, if, your light, if your delights are being brought to God all the time, then what you start to find is that God is bringing his delights to you all the time in all kinds of ways. And so, like, honestly, the, the things that, that, that I, where I probably get the most out of that would be, um, like, if I'm reading the Bible in the morning and I can geek out over seeing verses do things, I think that's one, of, that's one of my biggest thrills is just sitting there in scripture where you can get something where like, and it doesn't happen often, where you can get like two hours in a row of just like connecting things. I think that that's fantastic. Um, I think that the other things would be um, Sunday after church, having the whole family over and grilling usually, um, but just... Um, spending three or four hours where we're going to um, spend a long time cooking together and just sitting at the table talking about everything that's going on, finding out what's going on in the kids' lives, how we can be praying for them. That's just uh, the most fantastic thing ever. And then the other would be um, with my wife. Um, if we're going to have a conversation, it needs to be with me driving because I'm too ADD. And it's when I'm driving that I can actually sit and listen to what she's doing. If like we're in the house and I'm trying to listen to her talk, I will get distracted by other things. So we'll go on a long drive and just talk about <laughs> everything that's going on. Uh, the kids, uh, what we are trying, to, you know, when will our eternal home remodel be done or whatever. But, it, but it's really about what are we praying about? Like, what, what are the priorities in our lives? What are the things that we're putting on the altar? And then praying about it together and, and just putting it all in front of God. I think those, those three moments would be like the, the pinnacle of me knowing what it looks like to feel uh, the joy of God. You want to talk about delighting in the Lord? They didn't ask me that question. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I could. <laughs> well, then to, to either of you, which is the greater threat to our children? The sick, twisted ideology agenda of the left, LGBTQ, uh, CRT, etc., or false teachings from false, quote-unquote, Christian preachers? That's a great question. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if it's an either-or. I am... I, um, I do think the church, and again, this is the Machen quote. I think the you know the enemies come from within. I. It was it was interesting. We commented on that the the role of the church, the importance of the faithful church and godly preaching on a weekly basis. We. We live in an age of the impotent church, and it's a sad thing. It's a weak, anemic, sick bride. And uh, and I and I think we need to get healthy, as a church. So so that um, that is a huge problem. I you know when I was growing up, I always kind of heard the, the word Christian. Oh, that person believes in God. That person's a Christian, and you just kind of assume well they're on the same page. They believe this and they believe that. And the older I got, the more I realized you know it doesn't really mean a whole lot. You have to really have a conversation with somebody to find out. What is it they, they truly believe? So I think the church is weak. I think we need I think we need to see uh, you know the, the revival is going to happen from the church, not from without. Um, but I think the ideologies are are insidious as well. I mean they're pernicious in so many ways for our kids, and they just kind of soak up those things. But I would I would probably lean toward you know if the, if if we don't get this right as a church, we're not going to see uh, revival. I completely agree with that. The problem is. Um, the problem is not that the enemy's weapons are too great. 
the problem is that we're not using the armor and weapons that our God gave us because they're power. They're they're more powerful, um, and I think that that's where we need to put our focus. I think that um, if you if you have a culture that is um, tempting um, versus a family that is um, where the joy of the Lord is in that home is in that church. That's always more powerful if you have if you have that joy, and I think that's the thing you need to really cultivate. Thank you. If there if there was just a burning question, oh yes, there's a couple of burning questions. <laughs> Go ahead. So I'm wondering. I know I've heard you guys both talking about the importance of consistent discipline, but also like heard a women's group talking about the And I've been asked to repeat the question for the recording and stuff. So um, you, uh, both of you have spoken about uh, consistency and discipline. There is some opinion out there that maybe we shouldn't uh, discipline all the time because God doesn't necessarily discipline us other, all the time. What's your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think, and we mentioned this earlier, when kids are little... If it's not consistent, you know, what you, what you permit, you promote, that principle, that idea. So discipline doesn't mean you're giving, you know, 10 or 15 spankings a day. I think it does mean that you're addressing the disobedience. And so um, addressing the disobedience also means that you're pointing them to Christ, right? You're pointing kids to the truth of, of the scriptures, the truth of the gospel, the goodness, and the grace of God. So it's an opportunity. You know, it's grace to them. And so sometimes we, we think of discipline as um, it's, um, it's going to be uncomfortable for everybody. And it doesn't need to be that. I think it needs to be consistent and constant, um, but it's relational, you know, uh, saturated with that, with that love. So I, I don't know what's behind that. Um, I, I suppose we can, I suppose we can, we can talk about you know, there, there are times when discipline is just a conversation. Oh, remember, we want to look at, you know, we want to look at um, an adult when he's speaking to you. That's, that's just, I mean, that you could call that correction, uh, but it's very loving, soft, warm. Um, so I think there's danger in, in letting things go. And maybe I, I can't speak to what that, that person is saying, but, um, but I think it's, yeah, I think it's, I think it's dangerous if we just permit that to happen and don't address it. I would say I remember um, when when our first was we were in the thick of the whole spanking thing, and I remember um, first of all just being so amazed at the effect of consistent and faithful spanking, and it was specifically spanking, and just seeing this kid who could be in like demon mode, and then <laughs> and then and then all of a sudden it's just like fun and joy, and we're loving life. And I remember thinking like spankings are amazing. And I, and I remember having this like um, thought experiment in my head, and I was like, what if I could um, spank with 100% consistency? Like every single sin got swats. Could you get to moral perfection, you know, with this? And I, and I remember I'm running with this in my mind, like what could, if I could get to there? And then I, I just had this like moment of like, 
okay, just kind of golden rule. If I lived in a world where every sinful thought that ever entered in my mind, it was whack, whack, whack. And it's like, <laughs> do I find myself thriving? <laughs> and it was kind of like, okay, maybe I can back off just a little bit <laughs> and, and, and kind of chill out a little bit. And so um, I found that, that I, I think that... Um, the consistency has to do with the standard. Um, and, and I think that you don't want the standard to get, um, I, think you, I think it's really important that you have consistency in the standard because honestly, if, if the kid's like not sure when, to, like I know this is a no sometimes, but sometimes it's also not a no, you actually set them up in a really weird world. And I, and I, I think that it really is a kindness to them to ensure a consistency. That's not to say, though, that like every single thing needs to like, you know, go back and get swats. And I think that you have to have like you have a standard, but there are some things that like we're going to just talk through that or I'm going to I'm just going to be patient with that because I know you're having a very difficult day and that's not the thing I really need to address right now. So I, I do think that there is a there is room for like having some kind of chilling out and just treating that with love, treating that with understanding and whatnot. But I think that that's different from saying um, you, your standard shouldn't be consistently enforced. Uh, I think that that's a little bit of a different thing. Thank you. One more. We'll take. Yeah. Oh, I, I was supposed to, yeah. Um, the, uh, in your first talk, um, you emphasized uh, discipling, uh, following the Great Commission, particularly in the area of building institutions and building businesses and building families and Christian, Christian, seeing Christians doing these things. Um, in the uh, modern evangelical world, the Great Commission really seems to emphasize a lot more the idea of individual conversions and seeing as many people coming to Christ as possible. Mm -hmm. Are those at odds with one another? Are those different uh, strategies to the same end, or are, there, or, or are they coming about because there are different ends in mind? Yeah. So, um, it it they both. Um, you're right in terms of if I've got a guy in front of me and um, I'm coming from a post millennial perspective, this idea that the gospel is supposed to slowly fill the whole earth, and let's say I've got a, a brother in Christ who's coming from a pre mill perspective who believes that we're going to be raptured tomorrow and human history will be over and we're both sharing the gospel with this guy, I think both of us are aiming for the same thing and probably coming with the same message and everything. But the thing is, is that um, um, when tomorrow we wake up and we haven't all been raptured, um, and then the next day we haven't all been raptured, there is, over the long, um, over the long term, there is a very difference in strategy. If I say, um, if I say let's go to my eternal home remodel, um, if I say, hey, uh, we're flipping this house tomorrow, Okay, everybody, all hands on deck. We've got eight hours to get this thing ready because we're flipping it tomorrow. We will pick certain things to work on, and there are certain things that we will say, do not bother with that. 
that's pointless. But if I say, hey, this house, um, I'm getting ready for my great-great-grandchildren who will also live here, um, I'm going to take a very different approach to the things I prioritize and the things that I work on. And you can tell the difference between a house that has been maintained for being flipped tomorrow versus a house that has been maintained to be passed on generationally. Um, there, is a, there is a difference in quality. There is a difference in all, all kinds of different things about it. And I think that our church looks like that. I think that we keep having a church that looks like it was something that was supposed to be flipped tomorrow rather than something we were trying to pass on to our great-great-grandchildren. And I think our our short-sightedness is something that we're paying for now. Um, schools are, um, man, it is, it is just really hard to build and run a school. Um, the, um, the fundraising for the buildings, the, the, um, the, the um, cultivation of a like-minded faculty, the, um, the, the hard work of hammering out a vision of what does this education need to look like in order that it would bear long-term fruit, the um, cultivation of a board that can give leadership to, principled leadership to, these things, it's really, really hard work. And um, if we are just being raptured tomorrow, it's the wrong work. It really is the wrong work. We should run out some quick gospel tracks and a few things like that. But if we're here for another thousand years, this is really important work. And it has a disproportionate impact down uh, the road. Th here's a quick little mental experiment. If we were to go back 200 years, my watch is just like dinging like crazy. I mean to put it away and like beat it with a hammer. Um, the, um, if we were to go back in, in the history of, Amer of America, 200 years, and let's say you found every um, spirit-filled, regenerate Christian um, 200 years ago, okay? We're in 1821, and every regenerate, spirit-filled Christian in America committed to do this, they committed to build deep within their own family and church and ensure that their own children, that the gospel was deeply drilled into them and passed on, and that all of their children were saved. And let's say they did not share the gospel once. They never, ever evangelized anyone other than uh, their, their own children. And let's say that the, the Christian church did that for 200 years straight until where we are right now. If you ran that thought experiment, where we are right now, is America more Christian or less Christian? And it's weird if you think about that. Um, that's with zero evangelism, and yet we're a far more Christian nation because we prioritize building deep um, foundations, deep roots, and passing the gospel on. And the result is a more Christian nation. Now, to be clear, that would be disobedient, right? Because we're commanded to share the gospel. But I think we're commanded to share the gospel out of the fruit of what's going on in our own homes and in our own churches. And if we, and it's weird that that long-sighted approach, that far-thinking approach, results in more gospel fruit. Whereas that really short-minded, no, 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 don't do that, don't build... Don't build the church because when you do that, you're just building another building for the liberals, right? That's the way we tend to think. That short-sighted approach 
is resulting in far less fruitful evangelism. Um, so I, I really think that it, it does make a difference. And I think that we, um, uh, I, I think that we're missing something and I think we're currently experiencing the consequences of not having that, that far, far-sighted approach. Well, thank you both of you. That was a big tub of wisdom. Appreciate both of you for that. Tyler, what do we... Everybody stay put. Dr. Murphy's going to get it. A manifesto, yeah, okay.